Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Armchair Theologian um, and the musings thereof. So I promised last week that we were going to we were going to continue to uh, discuss uh, some of the traditional Christmas uh, hymns or carols and try to find some you know biblical backing and at the same time discuss the Christmas story. Uh, I'm really excited this week because um, I've chosen three songs that are a complete mystery. Um, and I always like to, to have a mystery. Some of my favorite uh, uh, books uh, growing up were uh, mystery-oriented. Some of my, my favorite television shows and movies uh, have that element of mystery involved in it. I've just always enjoyed finding the solutions to things. And so um, that being said, I think our first mystery needs to be found in Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the most complete account of the birth of Christ that we have, and that's in the book of Luke. Um, I like Matthew's account because Matthew goes into um, some other details that, um, that I wanted to know, you know, surrounding the birth and uh, some of the prophecies about him in, in Egypt and things like that. Um, obviously, we're dealing with the, the Magi uh, showing up, but the actual account of the birth of Christ was only like a verse or two. It's Matthew just doesn't go into a lot of details. His focus was on the uh, begats, which if you've not read the begats, uh, the, the pedigree, if you will, of uh, Christ the King, then you're missing out because uh, there's a ton of rich theological information in the begats. I told you guys before I'm a bit of a um, I'm a bit of a theological and Bible nerd um, when it comes to these stuff. I just I I I love the begats. But we are not going to talk about the Beats. We're talking about the birth of Jesus this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Luke, and it's in chapter 2. I'm just going to read a little bit to you guys, and, um, and then we're going to try to dispel some mystery and myth as we seek to find the truth behind the actual birth of Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, chapter 2 in the book of Luke. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor in Syria. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. And then, of course, it goes on to talk about the shepherds. Our first song this morning that we want to talk about is our first mystery, and then I'll get back to the mystery that we just read. Um, the first song that we have is, is the song, The First Noel. Um, the First Noel. Uh, this is one of those uh, those beautiful songs that is sung, um, you know, in a plaintive, just a joyful, um, eloquent way. And when everybody sings it, 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 it brings the mood down to a reflective, beautiful state where we can just sit there and just enjoy and ponder the birth and the entrance of our Lord and Savior into real history as he was born of the Virgin Mary. Um, the first Noel. It was written in 1823, and that's about all we know about it um, as far as the, uh, uh, the authorship. Um, we don't know much else. In fact, uh, it first showed up um, 
it first showed up in a, uh, uh, in, a, in a hymn book that was entitled Some Ancient Christmas Carols, and it was written in 1823. It was published by a man named um, uh, Davis Gilbert, but he didn't write it. He just sort of collected these songs. It was supposed to be traditional songs, and it came from somewhere. We don't really know where. We, we suspect it came from somewhere in the west of England, but we're just not really sure. Um, but the poetry is, is absolutely beautiful. Um, if you look at it in our Baptist hymnal, um, the first line is simply the first Noel, the angel did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay, keeping their sheep um, on a cold winter's night that was so deep. And then it goes on, the first Noel, the first Noel born um, is the king of Israel. Um, and that's the first uh, stanza. Um, and it's interesting because it, it goes into the story. And But if you really just read the poem for the poem itself, you get fits and starts of the, of the, of the narrative. Um, but it always leaves us questioning, well, what in the world is a Noel? Um, it's kind of odd. Because it's, um, it doesn't have a lot of roots. It's a word, evidently, that was popular during a time when this poem was written. Um, but there's not a lot about the words we know. We, as far as we can tell, it seems to be um, a French word with kind of Latin-y roots. It's a twist on the French word um, that means birthday. And so, obviously, you can tell by the context when you uh, just read the, the verses that we're talking about the first birthday and what the angels said about that first day that Jesus drew breath as a human being, uh, fully God and fully man at the moment of his birth, um, actually the moment of his conception. Um, and then it goes on and has uh, several other verses. I think um, there are more verses than what we normally have in our traditional uh, hymnal. Uh, but again, it's uh, the authorship is kind of a mystery, um, and there's not really any uh, impetus or, or, or indication that it comes from directly from any one particular scripture, because it talks about the Magi star, it talks about the shepherds, um, so it's obviously taking the full story and just sort of drawing it in and uh, bringing it to our attention. Um, and that brings us back to what scripture has to say about the birth of Christ, and we just read that, and uh, we read it in the book of Luke. And a few years ago, I was perplexed. Um, the, movie, uh, the movie had just come out about the Christmas story, and they did a wonderful job uh, casting the two characters that played uh, Mary and Joseph, and um, just the setting of the, the stage and the, and the tone, and, um, and, and the scenery and the costumes, and everything was just so spot on for the period. And then it goes into the story, and you have that iconic moment where, um, where, where Mary is, is uh, sitting on the back of that donkey, and, and Joseph is trudging all by himself with his little staff and leading that donkey, and Mary is incredibly pregnant and um, uh, waiting for that moment. And then they get into town, and we all know the story, right? They get into town, and you get this idea of Joseph, a, a poor, um, uh, a poor 
poor man, uh, new to town, uh, just just basically just stepping in, doesn't know anybody, doesn't know where to go, and he knocks on the door of um, uh, of, of a couple um, uh, hotels, inns, if you will, and 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 everybody turns him away, and finally one innkeeper um, who's gruff and mean, and in some of the stories, the, the innkeeper's wife is nattering over his shoulder, saying, "We don't have room," and uh, uh, and then the the softening of the heart because the baby kicks and and Mary groans a little bit. You can tell that she's heavy with child and ready to give birth any minute. And and so all of a sudden the the, the softening of the heart of the the innkeeper. And he says, "Well, I don't have any room in my in my inn, but but I got a stable out back. Let me let me take you there, you know." And then he brings him around back and and puts him in the uh, puts the the baby in the I mean the child the mother with the um, the pregnant mother and and, and Joseph and and they all sort of gather around and then um, there's sometimes there's uh, in some of the movies and some of the stories there's um, there's the the mildness of the pregnancy uh, moment you know where the birth gives place where where there's a little bit of sweat and a little bit of um, a little bit of pain but I mean it is Jesus right he is uh, the son of God so um, just as the conception was miraculous sure I'm sure the birth was pretty stupendous as well um, I don't know how much pain Mary went through but I know how much pain my wife went through when she gave birth uh, the few times she did um, so I, I wasn't there for the event but that's the story that we have and it's a beautiful story it's it's a wonderful picturesque moment uh, Countless Christmas cards have been created and songs have been sung and movies have been made and books have been written and, and, and beautiful pieces of artwork have been painted of these moments. Um, and they're all so incredibly wrong and not at all what scripture teaches. In fact, that whole story came from the Middle Ages. It came from a monk who was uh, writing in, the, I think, the 11th or the 12th century. Um, yes, that's 1,100 years after the birth of Jesus Christ, okay? Not 11 days, not 11 years, 1,100. 1,100 or more years after the birth of Christ was when this story started being put forth. And it was put forth by a monk who was just a writer, who was, who was trying to bring some more human color, if you will, to a story that everybody knew so well. But the only thing we really know is what is in Scripture. And we need to look at that. And look what it says. It says there was a decree that went out from Caesar. Got that. Anybody that disagrees with that can talk to Luke, who is a master historian. And every time they try to debunk um, uh, Luke's account and say, well, Quirinius wasn't really the governor at the time. And then they find something in the archaeological record that proves Luke right and us wrong. And so I err on the side of Luke always because Luke is always right because he was inspired by God to write uh, his particular gospel along with the book of Acts. And um, he was an incredibly intelligent man and a very meticulous in his details. Um, and that's the reason why I like looking at this because he was so an un unbelievably um, uh, articulate and, and meticulous about the details, right? 
Everything about his writing from chapter 1 Luke all the way to the very final chapter in the book of Acts is a very detailed account of what actually took place. And so we see that. Um, and everyone was supposed to register in their own city. We got that. We understand that. And so Joseph went up from where he was living in, Gal in Nazareth or Galilee um, and uh, from the city of Nazareth. And he went to Bethlehem, which is the, known as the city of David, because he was why? from the house and the family of David. Now, we we get this idea that he was a poor carpenter, and there's nothing wrong with that. As far as we know, um, back in those days, if you didn't own land, um, you were not wealthy. Uh, you worked for someone who did own land, period. And we know that carpenters weren't just hammer um, and nail kind of people. They didn't just build with wood. Carpenters in those days were just generic construction workers. Um, they were stonemasons. They were carpenters with wood. Um, they did everything. Um, so they weren't just sitting around making tables and chairs and, and cabinets and bureaus. Um, a lot of times they were doing the, the back-breaking work of the hardcore construction. Um, you had engineers and other people that did other things, um, but... Joseph was Joseph was a common laborer, um, and he was a carpenter by trade, which meant that he had the skill to build, and that's what he did. And the nice thing about that is, you, is anybody who's in the trades uh, business knows you can get a job just about anywhere. If you're an electrician, if you're a plumber, if you're a mason, a carpenter, you can get a job just about anywhere because those skills transcend location, um, and sometimes they're highly sought after. And I know in this day and age, um, the trades are sort of leaving our world. Um, um, in favor of, of more what people would think lucrative positions, and then they um, realize that all they really need to do is you know learn how to uh, learn how to do carpentry or, or plumbing, and, and their future would be set. But I digress, and I apologize. The point we're getting to is Joseph. Um, Joseph was. We have that image of him being poor, and I'm not saying he wasn't. But there is a fact that, that Luke points out in, in the Bible, very clear, that he was of the house and the lineage or the family of David, okay? And he's now traveling from where he's been living and working in Nazareth all the way, which isn't all that far, but it's far enough and not a long trip done mostly by walking with a pregnant wife. It probably wasn't an easy trek. And they were walking towards Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city of David. We oftentimes think and get in our mind that, that when we think of cities or towns, we think of something that we're familiar with. We don't think of a large, we don't think of a town in the days of Jesus. Um, we think of what we experience, what we know. And when the, uh, when the monk who wrote that story, he, he was writing from a perspective of what he knew. Um, which was a medieval-style town where you did have taverns and inns and uh, places for weary travelers to rest their feet. But in the Middle Ages, or in the days of Jesus, there weren't any taverns or inns or things like that because there was a level of hospitality that was demanded um, by not only their faith, but also by tradition and custom. Um, it was, and you see it in Jesus' teachings. Uh, one particular parable that is one of my one of my more favorites was the parable of um, the one fellow who 
um, was woke up in the middle of the night because somebody was at his door and needed a place to sleep. And so he goes over to his neighbors and he knocks on the door and says, hey, I need some food to, to feed this guy who showed up suddenly um, uh, at my door. This was common um, back in those days. It was, it was a story that, that could have taken place. It was a parable, but it was a story that could have taken place at any time in the lives of any of the listeners that were there because it was common um, for this to happen. When people traveled, um, especially in those days and age, and when, you, when somebody knocked on the door, you let them in because that's what you did. Your honor was at stake. This was an honor-shame-based culture. And if you turned your back on a, on a traveler that knocked on your door, not only would you potentially incur the wrath of, of God, although it's not specific in scripture um, about this, but you would definitely lose honor. And in a culture where honor is the one, the, the, people kill for honor. They still do it today in the Middle East. Um, it was an incredibly important thing. And so um, you have to understand that. That's A number one. Uh, second thing that you want to look at is that uh, when Joseph is showing up here, he isn't just some just some stranger. He's going to an incredibly small town. There probably wasn't even 100 people living in Bethlehem at the time. And it is the city of David. It's the birthplace of David, the house of David. He's from the house and the family of David. So was Mary. He wasn't going to some strange village he'd never been. He was going to where his family was, okay? And so the idea that he's going to show up as some itinerant traveler with no money and, and begging for a place to sleep is ridiculous. They would have known that he was coming. And when, even if they didn't, when he arrived, as uh, he has a direct, you know, understand what I'm saying? He has a direct line to the throne of David, okay? To uh, the David. I mean, hello, yeah, he may be a carpenter, but among the Jewish people, among the people of the day, yeah, they're an occupied people, they've got Roman governors, they've got all other issues going on, but to the people, he was a, he would have been a local hero. He would have been somebody that they would have fallen all over themselves to stay with. I mean, at the very least, they could have went just a little further down the road and, uh, and into the hill country and went and stayed with uh, Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who she had just recently gotten back from. It's not like they had no place to stay, okay? You say, well, pastor, but it says there was no room for them at the inn. Well, that word inn doesn't mean inn. It just means house, large house, okay? And let's look at that for a second. It goes on to the next verse, and it says um, they were, uh, that um, he had Mary with him in verse 5, and she was with child. Um, they were engaged, which just mean, goes on to say and reinforce what Matthew said, that, that he kept her a virgin until, um, until she gave birth. Um, and then in verse, 20, verse 6, it says, And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So the idea that she shows up in town about ready to pop is not scriptural. While they were there, I mean, the, the, the phraseology there in the Hebrew, the idiom there, is that they were there, and they were there in plenty of time. What father, what responsible man who is caring for his, the woman he loves dearly, that he's willing to subject himself to the shame of the accusation that she has um, been unfaithful to him, right? Because that's 
what the implication is, is that, you know, uh, she shows up pregnant and, and no one is going to believe that, that the Holy Spirit is the one that conceived this child because it had never happened before. And so, uh, you know, in an honor-shame culture, you know, there was some shame attached to him staying with her. But he chose to anyway, which demonstrates his incredible amount of love that he had towards Mary, right? And so... In the process of all that, um, what responsible man is going to load his wife up um, a week or two or three before she's about to give birth and then truck her um, all the way across? And the whole idea of her on a donkey, there's nothing in Scripture about her riding a donkey. She walked, just like everybody. I mean, the man had no money. He was a carpenter. Donkeys are expensive. Beasts of burden aren't easy to come by. It's not like, you know, they just, they pulled their pennies and say, hey, let's uh, rent, a, rent a donkey or buy one. It didn't happen. They didn't have it. You know, there's nothing in scripture about her riding an animal into town. It just says that while she was there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Okay, great. So she didn't show up at last minute. It wasn't in the middle of the night. And it wasn't, you know, like, oh my gosh, I got to find a place for this baby to be born. Okay. And, and let's go a step further. Okay. And she gave birth, or um, uh, she gave birth and wrapped her first, uh, gave birth to her firstborn son, obviously Jesus. Um, and she wrapped him in clothes or, or swaddled him in cloths um, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. <laughs> and there's that word, no room for them at the end. And this word has been so mistranslated over the years, it doesn't mean in. When we think of this, we think just like that monk who wrote this fancy story about the innkeeper and his wife saying, there's no room, you can't come in here, right? Um, and we get this in our minds because those, and, and it's reinforced in our culture. I mean, from the Middle Ages on, Every single fantasy story you've ever read, every single movie that you've ever seen that has any kind of fantasy or medieval element to it, the stories almost always involve an inn or a um, uh, uh, an inn or some kind of a, a tavern, right? And and the story always begins there, uh, or or at least it matures in there, or things happen because in that was the nature of of life back in the in the, in the Middle Ages, where you had all these people and you had these walled towns and people traveling from one place to the other, and when they get there, they didn't always have a place to stay, and this was common in their culture. It's common in our culture. How many times have we driven long distances and 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 at one and at one point in the journey you know you're like man i just can't drive another step and you start looking for exit after exit to see whether or not there's going to be a, a hotel that we can stay in lay our weary head um it's part of our culture it was part of the middle east uh, the, the medieval culture but it wasn't part of the middle eastern culture in those days in those days okay um, they had family groups that would live in houses. In fact, most families did not own a single family home. Most families lived in a house with a couple other family units. So you'd have cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and everybody staying in a house, all in one house. And their houses weren't separated. Like, you know, little Susie had his her bedroom and little Johnny had his bedroom and mom and dad had their bedroom. No, there were no bedrooms. There was just one big room. Everybody slept in it. And here's something even worse. Not only did the people sleep in the house, but guess who else slept in the house? Yeah, the animals. 
In fact, um, I'll put a diagram up so you guys can see it on the, uh, on the screen, but the houses actually had an area right in the front uh, that was uh, where, it was, it was where the, the animals were penned up. And this was so common, it's still done there to this day because the animals need to stay warm, the people need to stay warm. It's not like they had um, in-floor heating or, or central heat and air. And in the wintertime in other areas, it gets cold. It's they bring the animals in to sleep with them because it protects them. Think about this, you got a family who has um, you know, just a couple animals and their livelihood is dependent upon whether or not they can keep that sheep alive. They're not gonna leave them outside so that bandits and wolves and other things can steal them. Hello, they bring them inside at night so they can watch them because that's their property, their livelihood. And in the process of that, most of these houses had a little space, like a lowered area where they would, they would, they would be at. And they would usually have a feed trough that was, um, that was at the, uh, the point where the larger animals or the animals of whatever size they had would be able to eat. And they would put the, the hay or the food or whatever it is that the animals were eating in that little um, area. Sometimes it was a raised um, area like an actual manger that you see, like the, the cross legs and the, the hay sitting in there. But a lot of times it was just a depression in the stone. They still do it in the Middle, in the Middle East today. It's not, like, it's not like I'm making this up. You can go to the Middle East now and see this very same thing. It's been the same for the last 2,000 years in, in these poor Bedouin homes um, of these folks that, you know, don't have a whole lot. And, but here's the thing about the hospitality thing that I talked about before, and that is that all, all of these homes, um, if, they, if they had any hope at all, they always had a prophet's room. Uh, we see that uh, often talked about in, uh, in the story of Elijah and Elisha and how uh, when they would show up, there would be this prophet's place that was built. There was always a room that was added uh, for guests or travelers or family members that would be traveling. A lot of times mom and dad or um, whatever couple was the youngest that was needing sometimes privacy would be in. Um, but by and large, it was a, it was a, a room that was attached to the big house. A lot of times it didn't even have access to the big house. It just had an outside door that they would go into um, to give it that level of privacy. And this would have been where you would house your guests. Now, Joseph is showing up. He's there. A lot of other people are showing up. Families are gathering together. It's a pretty big and important time. And in this case, um, uh, there were probably already someone who was elderly or older or had a higher prominence in the family that deserved that room more, and they were given that room. And so Mary and Joseph were in the common area where everybody else was sleeping, okay? And it's in that area is where Mary and Joseph would have given birth. Now, that's another misnomer, too. A lot of people just think it was just Mary and Joseph hanging out there, you know, and he was holding her hand and helping the baby come along. No. Let me just tell you, that didn't happen then either, right? In that culture, same as they're doing now, they had midwives and they had women. And let me tell you something, this whole man being in the, in the birthing room when the baby comes, that's a new thing. That is not the way it's been happened for centuries, right? For centuries, the women would kick the men out and say, you got to be somewhere else. We're, giving, we're, we're, we're bringing a baby into the world and, and men just get in the way. 
And so that's probably what was what took place. It doesn't say that Joseph laid uh, the baby in a manger after swaddling was closed. It said Mary did. So Mary gave birth and on a birthing stool or or whatever they had, and they had the midwives there. And then when it was all done, they in that house, or surrounded by all these important women in her life, um, this child, the greatest child that's ever been born, Jesus Christ, uh, the God Man, the uh, you know. Uh, the, the hope of all the world come into this, this universe um, would have been laid in that manger, in that trough, right there in that house. And that's why we know this is the case. Now, it's not just me. You can, you can read. There's some really good books on this. Um, one of the best authors is a guy named Kenneth Bailey, who spent like 25 years, 15, 25 years living um, with the Bedouins. And, and um, he knows the language, knew the idiom. He's probably the, the premier scholar on this sort of thing. But, but there's dozens of other good scholars that have um, written great things about this. And I say all this because I don't want there to be a mystery. You need to know how Jesus came into the, into the earth. And we need to, yeah, we're going to send Christmas cards and we're going to watch the movies and we're going to tell the story. But we need to make sure that our children and the people that we talk to have the real story, not the one that was made up. Because the one that was made up is nice, but the real story is so much better. It really is. It, it tells about family. It tells about um, uh it tells about the, the incredible love between Joseph and Mary and the love that they had towards Jesus. Um, it just plays into the most, some of the most important events in the story. And that brings us to our second, uh, uh, our second mystery song, if you will, which is the song Away in a Manger. I love the song. It's one of my favorite songs in the whole world. Um, the song itself uh, was, um, was titled Away in a Manger, and in the hymnals for years, it was known as Luther's Cradle him. In fact, for many, many, many years, that's the way it was. Uh, that's what was written in hymn books. It was "Away in a Manger," Luther's Cradle Hymn. the The story went that uh, Martin Luther would wrote this song, and at least the first two verses, and he would sing this to his children every evening as they went to sleep. And it's a beautiful song. It's honestly, it's, it's in my opinion, this and, and uh, Silent Night are my two most absolute favorite um, Christmas songs. And if, if I go through Christmas without singing them in church, I feel cheated sometimes. Um, and away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. Stars in the sky look down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. Nothing I've said there disputes what we've talked about in Scripture or what I've shared um, in, in this. Um, and then, of course, that final, uh, uh, so talking about cattle lowing in the, and the baby wakes, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Not sure if that's true. I think there's some crying involved. He was a baby. Um, that's how babies communicate. Um, but it, it talks about, I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky. Um, stay by my cradle from, till morning is nigh. Um, be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. That final verse was written later on. Um, but this came out about 1885. Um, it came out in a songbook entitled Little Children's Book. Um, and it was... Uh, 
published by some German Lutherans in Pennsylvania. And while no real authorship is given, um, people have tried to say it was Luther, but the reality was Luther had no, had no point in the writing of this uh, particular um, hymn. But it was probably a Lutheran who did love Martin Luther and his teachings. Um, and he was a German Lutheran who lived in Pennsylvania, or she, good man she, um, and uh, wrote this beautiful poem. And in 1892, it was published with the third, um, the third stanza uh, by, name, by a man named Charles Gabriel. And, uh, you know, sometimes we ask ourselves, well, who cares about that? Do we have to have a history behind this? Well, not really. Uh, but sometimes it's nice to know that these mysteries may, may always remain a mystery, but the message behind the mystery is beautiful. And that is that Jesus came into this world and in the very beginning, he, was a, he came in poverty. He came to a poor family. His message has resonated throughout blue collar and poor families um, uh, for centuries, which leads us to our final and last song that I want to talk about today, which is a song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, it was first published in 1907, but it was probably first sung in the late 1800s, like 18, 1880, maybe 1890. Um, and it's a wonderful song, um, but it came about uh, by a man named uh, John Wesley Work. Um, he was obviously named after the great... Uh, uh, the great revivalist, uh, John Wesley, um, but his last name was, was fully Work. So John Work was his name. And John Work was uh, born in Nashville somewhere in uh, around August, to the beginning of August in 1871. And his father was a choir director. He said, well, what does that have to do with things? Well, um, John Work was a, he was a black man. And he was growing up in a time when slavery was just coming to an end. There was still a lot of, uh, lot of racism, a lot of problems between um, uh, the, uh, the white and the black uh, uh, interactions. And there was clear separations. Obviously, you know, white people didn't do and didn't go to the same places the black folk did. And in fact, a lot of churches um, in the South had balconies. And if you're in a church in the South and you have a balcony, originally those balconies were where the poor and the black would sit, um, the blacks would sit. And and the, the, the upper crust and the white folk would sit down um, in the main area. Um, it's interesting that most Baptist churches, old original Baptist churches, didn't have balconies. Um, and that's one way you can sort of tell the roots of the church is, do they have a, did they have a balcony? Is it an old church that didn't have a balcony? If it did, then that's where the slaves and the, um, uh, and the black folks sat. But most Baptist churches, which were always more of a common man's church, um, didn't have balconies at all, which is kind of an interesting uh, side note. Um, but there was these, um, these plantation uh, spirituals, these African-American spirituals that were sung in the plantations for, for, for just a number of years in the early Americas when slavery was still legal. And uh, this, is where, um, this is where John and his father um, fell in love with and led music from. I mean, the, the, the type of music that would come from the plantations was some of the most beautiful um, songs, period. And the idea of go tell it on the mountain, you know, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, um, while shepherds keeping watch over their silent flocks by night. Um, the shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth um, rang out the angel chorus, down in a lowly manger, a humble Christ 
Christ was born and God sent us salvation in the blessed Christmas morn. Um, it was a beautiful song of freedom that was born. And to, um, to folks uh, working in the plantation from the African Americans that came as slaves, um, the idea of, 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 of freedom that Jesus brought resonated in their culture um, so intensely. And, and it's one of the reasons why if you have the privilege to um, attend a, a service that's led by an African American um, choir director, um, you can tell that 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 um, if he knows his roots and if he knows um, uh, the past, you can tell that just just a. The, the connection to music sometimes is so much better, um, so much richer and deeper. And that's the way it was for John Work. Um, his father just loved these musics. And so when John um, decided he wanted to go to university, he enrolled in a place called Fisk University. Um, and he was working on a degree in history and Latin, um, but he just couldn't get away from the singing. He loved to sing. So he was part of a, a traveling music troupe that would sing these these plantation spirituals. And it was probably first sung, um, like I said, in the in late 1800s, probably 1880, 1879, um, when this first song was... Uh, this the song "Go Tell the Mountain" was first sung, even though it wasn't published. And later on, uh, John Work was uh, he graduated with his master's degree. Um, he went. Uh, uh, they hired him to be a. a a professor um, of Latin, and um, in the process of all that, he still could not leave his first love, which was these plantation spiritual songs that were sung by his forefathers um, uh, from plantation to plantation. And so he put together uh, a book in 1907, which is when the first time this book, was, this particular song was written in a songbook. Um, and he put together in the song, it was just works, folk songs, um, uh, of the South as sung in the plantations. And he has a, had a number of good songs in there. In fact, his two sons um, also followed in that same tradition and uh, uh, served on the faculty of Fisk and began working with a group of singers known as the Jubilee Singers, um, and the uh, singers of, of uh, African-American spiritual folk music. Um, beautiful, beautiful songs that uh, we have from our history in our South. I know in this day and age where it seems like we're trying to rewrite history and um, we're trying to cleanse any uh, discussion of uh, of slavery and, and the horrible heinous um, acts that, that, that occurred in that in our history, um, I, I would encourage people not to be careful, uh, not to rewrite history so much as that we lose some of the richness of our history. And I have to tell you, the the, the songs from the plantation um, that were sung by those that worked the, the, the fields. Yes, it was terrible that they were there. I had no doubt about it. My family comes from the north. Um, I was back as far as my family can um, can tell. We uh, we never, uh, my family never engaged in slavery. We're always uh, part of that abolition movement. My mother's family is is Irish, and um, uh, there were Irish slaves just like there were black slaves. And um, um, there is uh, some history of, of that in my family, um, going back uh, several generations. And so, um, you know, I understand. Uh, the plight in a small way, uh, and I think it is heinous. And I think that honestly, the reality is, is that even though we have slavery that's occurring even today, um, there's there is nothing worse than that. Uh, but that being said, um, the the songs and the stories and um, the the history is so rich that we shouldn't forget it. We should learn from it. Um, and in times like this, when we have that beautiful song, "Go Tell It on the Mountain," we should learn from that. Um, the, those working the fields on the plantations, though they were slaves, though they didn't have a choice to be there, 
they still sang these beautiful songs, specifically this one, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that Jesus Christ was born today, the one who brought freedom from sin and death, the one whose birth was foretold by the angels, who came not to the wealthier people that lived in the big houses, but they came to the poorest people in the culture, and they announced his birth, and Jesus was born into one of the poorest families in a beautiful, rich, loving family environment between not just Mary and Joseph, but their entire extended family. That's the kind of postcard that I would love to see, is Mary and Joseph's entire family gathering around as Mary holds that newborn baby Jesus and lays him gently on the hay as everybody gathers. And then all of a sudden that knock on the door happens and the shepherds burst in. They want to see. And let me tell you something as we close on this. The Bible says that after the shepherds saw Jesus, they left, right? Praising. If, if, if that story were true, that we've been told for years, that Mary and Joseph were in this stable and in poverty and squalor, no place to cook dinner or heat water or do anything for this newborn baby. And those shepherds showed up and saw Mary and Joseph in a state of such disrepair. First of all, every quote-unquote innkeeper in that town would be instantly shamed. And those, those men or women that were on the hill shepherding those flocks would have collected Mary and Joseph and brought them to their own home so that Mary would have a place because in that culture, hospitality was king. So I'm telling you now, Jesus was surrounded by his family and friends and people that he cared about and cared about him. The very people that he came to save were the ones that were there at his birth. And here's the beautiful story is, Jesus didn't stop caring about just those immediate people that were there when he was born. He cared about every single human being that's ever lived and ever will live. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The Bible says that, uh, that Jesus, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible says that he came to his own and his own knew him not. He says, those of us that accept him are given the gift of being able to be called the sons and daughters of the living God. It's a beautiful, beautiful passages. Now, I know I've quoted all over the different areas in the Gospels, but um, the point is this, is that Jesus came to bring freedom. And if you don't have that freedom today, I encourage you to open up God's Word. Send us a private message on Facebook. Uh, send me a message on my email. I'll put my email up. And I encourage you, ask me, ask us. We'll tell you what it means to be a say, to be a Christian. But for the rest of us, I encourage you this Christmas season to get back to the basics, read the actual scripture, and find the truth of the birth of Jesus, not the movie version, because the truth is always better than the movie version. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll close. Father, we thank you so much for the day you've given us. We ask that you'll give us a beautiful Christmas and a wonderful time as we celebrate this third week in Advent, as we look forward to our final week in Advent, where we can uh, celebrate the birth um, of your son into real history. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you, and we ask all these things now in the name of your son, our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Again, I want to thank everybody for joining us in uh, this week's episode of Musings of an Armchair Theologian. <laughs>